All right. So, 1 Corinthians. And tonight, tonight we are in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now, that's a bunch together. But in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're dealing with one topic. And it's not a topic we typically deal with. It's not something that we would typically be concerned about. I mean, they're asking the question, okay, I'm going to the meat market, and there's this meat, and it's been sacrificed to an idol. Is it okay to buy that meat and take it home and feed it to my family? Or I'm, I'm invited over to a friend's house, and we're having meat there, but the meat was sacrificed to an idol. Is it okay to sit down and eat with them? Or, you know, there's this big thing I got invited to. There's a banquet tonight downtown. Well, it's at somebody's temple. It's, it's at the Temple of Apollo, maybe. The old one, the big one, the, the real deal down there in, in downtown Corinth. And it's going to be quite, everybody's going to be there. But, I mean, is it okay for me to go? Because, I mean, it, it is a idol's temple. But we who are Christians know that there's only one God. There is only the God who created the heavens and the earth. There aren't any other true gods. And so, if we know that, because we know that, aren't we freed by that knowledge that we can go and eat whatever we want? It doesn't really matter because there aren't other competing gods to begin with. That's the question that's being asked. We're not faced with those questions, really, in our, in our normal entanglements, are we? We're faced with, should I eat that or not? But maybe it's because, well, what, does this fit my keto diet? Does, does this, um, is this gluten-free? <laughs> you know, is there, I don't know. How many, how many carbs are in that? How many sugar? How many calories in that? That's maybe what we're deciding on, if we should eat that or not. Or maybe we're not concerned at all. Um, seafood, eat it. Um, so that's the, that's the context. And one thing I want us to just, let's brainstorm just a minute. Well, this is a question about things that you could do, but maybe you wouldn't do for the sake of somebody else, first of all. Things that you could do, but maybe you wouldn't do for the ben- positive benefit it could have to others. Or if you did that, it could be a negative benefit to others. Or things that you could do, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable because maybe there's another aspect to it that I haven't been thinking about that actually does make it a dangerous thing. Now in that context, maybe there's a danger involved in that that I haven't thought of. Or maybe if I do that, that could be somewhat dangerous to somebody else who's watching and following my example. Now, on that basis, for before we can jump into these chapters, what are some comparable today issues that might relate to that? Oh, well, I have a friend who is a recovering alcoholic. Okay. Okay, so you're not worried. You're not so much worried about the steak you're going to have at the at the afternoon barbecue, but you're worried about you're not gonna offer a wine cooler with it. Okay? Anybody else? Should I drink alcohol? I can drink alcohol. There's nothing wrong with having a glass of wine, is there? The Bible doesn't say don't have a glass of wine. In fact, the Bible tells us in various places to have a glass of wine. It tells us not, not to be drunk with wine. Okay? So, that I think we could fit that into both sides. For instance, for me, I should stay away from alcohol, I should stay away from wine, because I have a parent who is an alcoholic. And they tell us that that's one of the leading indicators of a person's potential 
to battle with alcoholism themselves if you have a parent who is an alcoholic. So I should stay away because it might be dangerous to me. It could be permissible, but not profitable. It could be dangerous to me as well. So I could approach it from both sides. Anything else besides alcohol? Uh, we went to Iliani a couple of months ago, and we didn't end up eating there because it just didn't. We hadn't been there before, and it didn't feel like the right kind of place. But it definitely wouldn't be a place that you'd want to take someone who had a gambling issue. And okay. There, okay. Just do I want to kind of support a place that it just when we were in when we were in the Air Force in Biloxi, Mississippi, that was a big deal because the Christians in the South, the church is empty at noontime and everybody hits the buffets, right? And where are the, where, where are the best buffet bargains in town? They're at the dockside casinos. So casino buffet, should I eat? That's a great one because it ties into the eating here, here in 8, 9, and 10. Should I eat at the casino buffet? Yeah, sure. Uh, a stale, left-out food that everybody sneezed over. <laughs> Knock yourself out. <laughs> this is great stuff. Uh, but yeah, very attractive. And, and for the Christians, for the Christians, some of them are thinking, nah, but it's a casino. And they have ruined the private restaurants. They have driven them all out of business because they can't compete with their prices because they're trying to drag anybody into the casino. You get them in the door just for the restaurant. Because it's a nice restaurant. We're just going to the restaurant. That's what all the Christians tell each other. But they got to walk by all these flashy light machines before they get to the restaurant. And you get them comfortable in the restaurant, and then maybe along the way they'll get comfortable. So that could be dangerous to somebody else. That also could end up being dangerous to you. Yeah, another good example. Any others come to mind? We're looking for common, common today examples of this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols, which is not one we wrestle with typically. Something that you could do that would be permissible, but might be harmful to somebody else following your example. Could be a danger to you that you're not thinking about. Well, let's start with those then. Let's get, let, let's get into the passage. Um, the, historic, the issue historically, I had a note here that I added, and you can see this on the screen, but the issue historically is non-Jews coming to faith was turning from the idols of their age to Christ without abandoning their ethnic identity or becoming Messianic Jews. They don't need to become Jewish, they don't need to be circumcised, they don't need to start keeping feasts and festivals of the Jewish religion, but they do need to break away from their previous idolatry. It was not strange um, or uh, for... I can't make out. Sometimes I write notes on my phone and it chooses the wrong words for me. Um, participate in idol feasts, whether Christians or not. But for pagans who become Christians, that... Let, let's, let's see the rest of the note here. Let's, let's open that up. We're going to try to open that up. Oh, it's over here now. Where is it? Okay. Ooh. For pagans who become Christians, their, re their repudiation of idols was a repudiation of a significant cultural norm that society as a whole did not understand. What, you're not going to go to the banquet anymore? Others around you don't understand that. Why won't you come to the banquet with me? You always used to come to the banquet with me. What's wrong? We're just having dinner. It's a great time. Um, today the application might be, what radically new ways do we abandon superstitions, idols, or false confidence of, of our culture without becoming aliens to the culture? That's the tension. In 1 Corinthians 8, our knowledge is limited, love takes priority, 
And the idols humans trust in are vain, empty, and futile. They are so-called gods. There's a spiritual reality, but they are not to be feared. Maybe that could relate as well to confidence in medicine and medical interventions. The medical practice can heal and cure, but it cannot give or keep life. Education can be useful, but is no guarantee of security or prosperity in life. Life in Christ is a guarantee of security and prosperity. Okay, so you have your notes. Um, chapter 8, and 8, 9, and 10 actually divide up pretty well, except we're going to slip, just nudge into chapter 11. But chapter 8, avoid meat sacrifice to idols out of love for a believer with a sensitive conscience, and avoid pagan idol feasts in order to glorify God. And there's, there's a little background there. The, um, most of the meat in the markets likely had been sacrificed, dedicated to a pagan god before it was sold in the market. Then parts of it might have been used in the altar, and what's left then goes to the meat market. And so really, if, you, if you're selling cows, you, know, you win twice. You please the god and you make the money at the market. That's a win-win. Uh, so that's what's going on. It's difficult to buy meat that hasn't been corrupted in some way, connected to pagan idolatry in some way. Also, a celebrated main course of a private banquet or a trade guild banquet. We talked a little bit about the trade guilds before. And uh, if, if you're in Corinth, you become a Christian. You still have your trade. You still have your skill. You're a stone worker. You're a builder. You're well. They actually had plumbers in that day. They did have running water in some of the some of the nicer homes. Uh, you you you're a goldsmith, a metal worker, an iron worker. You have a particular trade skill, and there's a a guild. There is a, an association, like a union of workers in that, and they have a patron god who looks after after workers like them. Uh, we have politicians, they had patron gods who would look after them in their union. And so they would honor their god in order for the prosperity of their occupation. And if you no longer honor the god, well, the god might be mad at all of us. And so what do we do? If you can't come to the banquet with us any longer, you're suspect. And we may expel you from the guild, which means your bid on jobs is not going to be accepted. You're going to be shut out from the best work in your specialty, in your vocation. You're going to be sidelined. You're going to be marginalized if you don't participate. Is it okay if we participate then? You know, it's going to cost us something not to, so what's the big deal? They're not really gods. That's part of the background. Okay, avoid food sacrifice to idols in chapter 8. The guiding principle is that applying truth in love is more important than being right. This is because the, the main argument to what does it matter is we know that there's only one God. And that's theologically right. You can be right in theology and yet wrong in love. That's one of the takeaways here. Concerning food offered to idols, verse 1, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. So Paul is contrasting the two. Love is better than knowledge. Love 
love builds up, knowledge puffs up. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols. Oh, I buzzed by something else first. Did you catch that very first phrase in chapter 8? Now concerning. This is another one of those things they've asked about. Now concerning marriage. They asked about marriage. Now concerning food offered to idols. They asked about food offered to idols. We're going to run into now concerning several more times as we go. These are all topics that they brought up. Okay. Now, therefore, as to the eating of food, he gives us a little prelude first, and now as to eating food offered to idols. We know, we know, quote, an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. Now that's in quotation marks, at least in an ESV Bible. You see the quotation marks there? And that's just suggesting in the translation that Paul is quoting what they said to him when they asked the question. Because we know that no idol has any real existence, it's just a piece of wood, it's just a piece of stone, it's just a piece of metal. There's nothing really there. It's a dead idol. It doesn't have any power or ability. My favorite example of that is the uh, idol, idol of the Philistines, Dagon. Dagon. I mean, they brought the Ark of the Covenant there and Dagon. I mean, the, his hands broke off, he falls on his face down before the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> Dagon, he has no power at all. So, so-called gods. There is no God but one. We know these things. So what's the big deal? Although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth. Yeah, the Greeks have all kinds of gods. The Romans have all kinds of gods. As indeed there are many, quote, gods, many lords. Small g, small l. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So we know this is true, yes, but not all possess this knowledge. So now we're going to talk about what he's going to refer to as the weaker brethren. Some, though through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. So they grew up doing this. They have a habit of doing this. So when they go in and sit down in a, at a, in a table in the temple and they eat the meat, to them it's like... It's like somebody who was, I don't know if I should say it this way, but who was raised in the Catholic Church, goes back in and does the holy water, the sign, sign of the cross, before they get into the pew, and they go up and they take the communion and they say the things back and they're, they're back into that worship that before had actually kept them from knowing Christ. And it actually can be a, 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 a obstacle to their faith. It can grieve their spirit instead. Not all have this knowledge. To them, the idols still represent something, and their conscience then, being weak, is defiled. Now, how is that the case? What's going on there? You might be right about idols, but you might be missing a bigger point. An idol has no spiritual power. That's true. But what does this weaken their conscience? How does that weaken their conscience? That's really kind of a crux issue there. Their conscience being weak is defiled. What does conscience do for us? How does conscience help us? Is conscience of any help at all? Well, it has, at least it makes you hesitate and think about okay. things that just, just... Okay, it makes you hesitate because why? Well, you think 
Is this good for me? Should I be doing this? Okay, is this right? Is this the, a good thing to do? Is this a right thing to do? Or is this a wrong thing to do? Your conscience out of is informing out of your knowledge and your experience. Your conscience is saying, do this or don't do this. This is wrong. This is right. Somebody will ask me, is it, is it right? For, or actually, they'll, they'll ask it this way. Is it okay for a Christian to, and they'll say something. And I say, and my response might be, well, it might be, but probably not for you. Now, why would I say that? Probably not for you. Why would I say that? If they're questioning it. Because they're asking. They're, they're asking. They already have doubts. Otherwise, they just go ahead. There's something already in their own conscience that's telling them they shouldn't do that. But they've seen others do that, so they kind of like to do that. But that would weaken their own conscience. Weaken in the sense that it becomes less influential to them. They callous themselves against their own conscience. They, they strengthen their ability to ignore it. And at first the conscience says, no, don't do it. And then the conscience says, no, don't do it. And then the conscience says, no, probably shouldn't do that. And then the conscience is back over here in the corner somewhere saying, no, you really shouldn't do that, but you're going to do it anyway, so it really doesn't matter. And you're not listening or paying attention anymore. So, so you can't, that, that I think is what's being meant by damaging their conscience, weakening their conscience, which based on what they do know so far and their past experience that, hey, there was idle stuff there. That was false worship there. For me to participate again is, is going back to an idol that I was a part of before and I shouldn't do that. I should shun those things. I should flee those things. And that's what the conscience is telling them. And so, if somebody else, <laughs> there's never been, never been bothered by idols, never had any time for any of that. I was completely secular, um, Corinthian before I came to Jesus, and now I know Jesus, and I know He's the only God, and there's nothing to any of that stuff that y'all been worshiping all those years. And I'm just here for the meat. You know, it's kind of like when. And Julie's sister asked me not long after I saved, we were having a softball game at the church, and she was, she, she asked me flat out. She said, "Are you saved? You're just here for the food." Well, in this case, that Corinthian could say, well, I'm just here for the food in this temple. You know, that's, it, that's all that it's about. And, uh, but for somebody else watching, it's much more than that. And yet, well, you know the Bible really well. And, and well, you're, you know the Bible, and it's okay to you. You judge it okay, so, so I guess it's okay... And that would be kind of like me when the person asks me, is it, is it okay if a Christian does? And I tell them, oh yeah, yeah, sure, there's no problem with that, without listening to them first why they're asking. Um, and I might then encourage them to go ahead and do something when their own conscience has told them not to. And I have not served them well when I tell them to go ahead and do something that their conscience has told. I don't know why the why perhaps the is, perhaps the spirit is is working within their mind and conscience and telling them to do something that they shouldn't do because there's danger to for them there that I'm not even aware of. And so I shouldn't encourage somebody to violate their conscience. Pastor Bob, when he says if their conscience is weak, does that mean that we should be working as Christians to strengthen our conscience? I mean, in other words, if they're strong Christians rooted in their belief, they wouldn't be having these issues. It doesn't sound like a positive thing if his conscience is weak. Yeah, there, there are, there are, Paul will refer to the weaker brother and the stronger brother, and when he does that, he's not necessarily doing it in, in, with negative connotation. Oh, okay. 
Um, think of it in the sense of a family where the, the, the older children, they've grown up some. They're a little stronger physical, physically. They're a little more aware of dangers in the environment around them. And those older kids then should help look out for the younger kids. Think of it that way. There's no, there's no negative involved in being a younger kid. But the older ones should look after the younger ones and not just please themselves. We don't want to watch the younger ones. We want to go do this thing. And meanwhile, the young ones are falling off the monkey bars and breaking their arm. And the old ones should have watched them. Same kind of thing in the Christian life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Younger in the faith. Then sure, they're younger. Of course they're younger. They're, they're younger. And there's nothing, there's no, there's not a negative. Oftentimes, well, I don't want to be considered a weaker, you know. Well, well, think of it in terms as younger then. And that would be a good analogy. So their conscience being weak then is defiled. Now, food, whether you eat food or not, God is not more pleased with me because I'm able to eat something that somebody else is not able to eat. That doesn't make the difference. That's not the point. And so that's what he says here, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat. We're no better off if we do eat. And so there's the thing where do I need to, do I need to then make a point of helping this brother to see, no, no, it's okay. There's really not idols there. You can really eat whatever you want. That's not the first thing. It's better for them to follow their conscience. And yeah, they need to continue to grow. But if I force them to act on a knowledge that hasn't been settled in faith. James makes an interesting statement. He says, whatever is not of faith is sin. And we can, out of knowledge, we can press somebody to do something that they don't yet really have faith to do. And that is not helping them. It's actually hindering them. Uh, take care, okay, so you have the, we are, take care, verse 9, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That you have the right to eat what you want to eat, sure, he says, but don't make that a stumbling block. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating idols temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now, don't read destroyed as if that this is going to, he's going to lose his salvation over this. That's not the point. He's, he's going to now burn in hell because you, you, he saw you do something and now he's going to do. But, but he's, he's harmed. And Paul does put it in very strong terms. Uh, this weak person is destroyed. There's a cross reference there. Romans 14, or Romans 14, 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not damage, do not harm him. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. So again, well, destroy is a strong word. We can't destroy the work of God, can we? But can't we hinder it? Can't we mess it up? Maybe, maybe think of it that way. He's using a very strong, forceful word with that kind of connotation. So the cross-reference is a little helpful there. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So by exercising your legitimate freedom, you could do that. You could have a glass of wine. You could eat at the buffet and not at all be tempted to gamble. And yet somebody else is going to see you. Yeah, I guess the buffet is the thing, but they shouldn't be anywhere near 
those gambling machines because that's going to suck them in. Uh, you could eat at a you could eat an English style pub where there's the bar and 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 beer on tap, and yet somebody else in that environment is going to have a hard time turning down a drink. And so, choose someplace different, just for that reason. If food makes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother to stumble. And again, so it's not meat for us. We're not in the same environment, so don't make it about meat, but it's about some of these other areas. John Piper makes a strong statement about, he says, a a Christian who who discernly or with discretion drinks alcohol, a, a Christian who socially drinks alcohol but without getting drunk probably doesn't know someone who's an alcoholic. Because if you know somebody's an alcoholic and seeing the damage, you wouldn't go near for their sake. And so that's a, that, that, that I think is a helpful perspective. If alcohol would make my brother or sister stumble, I don't need it. The buffet is not that good would be another way to think of it. Any questions about chapter 8? Chapter 8 is fairly straightforward. Yeah. This is specifically for believers to believers. Yes, yes. So then, I mean, you can kind of connect it to non-believers Yeah, the, the non-believer doesn't have the under... In this case, as he's talking about um, um, idolatry, and, the, and, and that's in the background in ways that, in ways that with the wine it's, it's not. But you'd certainly, for love of an alcoholic who's not a believer, you're not going to lead them to a bottle of wine either. Yeah, so that would certainly apply in the same way. And yet for, for, for a Christian, a lot of times we, we get into these rules and we want to avoid legalism. I, I don't want to tell people, you, you, sh- you, you shall not drink alcohol, because the Bible doesn't say that. But it is wise for us to consider. All things are profitable, or rather, all things are lawful. We can drink that, but it's not necessarily profitable. And it may be that it isn't going to be unprofitable for me, but it might be unprofitable for somebody else. It might turn out to be unprofitable for me, too, and I just don't realize it yet. That's where we're going to get to in chapter 10. Because they are minimizing something here. Um, You know, you could go further. You could say, okay, the casino buffet, but what about throwing a quarter in the slots? Would that be okay? Well, I think the Bible does speak against gambling. I can't quote the verse. Yeah. Yeah, you can't. You could build a theology that way, but just just an easy proof proof chapter and verse would be a little more difficult. You would you would go there going after coveting, is is coveting and sloth. Putting those together is, is how you is how you get there. And I think it's a good principle. Yeah, but I'm 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 not gambling for a fortune. I'm going to take five dollars in get quarters and stick it in the machine and just see what happens. And nothing happens, or maybe I'll walk out with eight dollars. Who knows? It's just I'm pulling the lever and watching the flashy lights. Is that a problem? Well, maybe it is, because maybe the idol of a potential win is going to grab me in a way that I'm not aware of. There is a very intentional, for instance, just going to the casino model, uh, social media is, 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 TikTok is huge on this. 
Uh, in fact, it's being, it's being argued now how much they can use the algorithms to deliver people what will keep them hooked. Um, because it's intentionally fed to you in order to keep you hooked. It seems completely harmless and yet it's meant to keep you hooked and to draw you in more and more. The more time your eyes are on the screen, the more ads you're going to see. And, well, the Chinese are trying to rot the culture as well with TikTok. There's that. But, um, so seemingly, I can do that. It's not a big deal. I don't know. I don't realize how there actually is a power behind the thing working against me for my harm. It just seems like it's just an online thing. Okay, any other questions about chapter 8? Yeah. looking for, you know, we sang the song this morning, Only You Can Satisfy. What am I looking for to satisfy? What am I looking for to fulfill me? What, I'm, what am I looking for to medicate when I feel down? Yeah. Yeah. Things that I look for my identity out of. That's, that's a subtle idol. Um, things I look for for security. And the medical science today is a, is a significant idol in our culture. Somebody said once you want to know where the idols are, look for the biggest temples in town. The biggest temples in town will identify the idols of a culture. And for us, it is government, it is health care, it is education. Those are the biggest temples in town. That's where, that's where the big money goes. Government will keep us safe. Government is supposed to provide for us if we can't provide for ourselves. Um, education will tell us what we need to know. There will be experts. I don't need to think for myself. They'll look after me. Uh, medical science will keep us alive, will protect us from unseen dangers that we easily perceive in the weakness of our mortality. COVID-19 gave us a wonderful laboratory exercise in that, didn't it? The, uh, the extents that we would, we would go to as a society to try to protect ourselves. Looking to experts to answer things for us. Okay, so chapter 9. Now Paul, on the same topic, we haven't changed topics, Paul's saying, am I not free? Why? He says, we're free. Can't we do what I want to do? Why, why is my freedom being judged by somebody else? Why am I held back from my freedom because of somebody else's hang-ups? So they had hang-ups with idols. So they had hang-ups with alcohol. So they have a trouble with gambling. But why does that keep me from enjoying something that I could enjoy? Because it's all about me, isn't it? And Paul says, no. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? What is he saying all that? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. What is Paul saying here? Paul is a legitimate apostle. Okay? Well, why is he saying that? Certainly to the Corinthians, if nobody else, Paul's a legitimate apostle. 
So then, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles of the Lord, the brothers of the Lord, James and Jude, and Cephas, or Peter? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We talked about the Catholics earlier. What does that tell you about Peter? Peter takes along a believing wife. Peter is married. Sorry about that. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the meat or, or the milk? What is he saying here? We have the right as apostles of Christ to be supported by the churches as apostles. We have that right. Just as the churches support the other apostles, as they apparently did, and the Corinthians knew that, Paul also had the right to claim to be supported by the churches. And this is not just on his own authority. He says, do I say these things by myself? Verse 8. The loss is the same. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things, is it too much we would reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, when Peter came, they took an offering. They supported him. That's what you can imply out of this. When other apostles have come through Corinth, they have been supported. And yet Paul apparently has not. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Do you not know that those who are employed in temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay, that's probably a better example than the ox, don't muzzle the ox who's threshing out the, out the grain. Because he applies the ox to supporting apostles or pastors. Well, is that really what Moses said back there? Is that really what he meant? He says, well, God isn't just concerned about oxen. He's saying, what he's saying, Paul's little, this is kind of a Jewish rabbinical um, model of exposition. Paul's going back to Moses. Moses said this, if, if Moses would say that's true about oxen, how much more would it be true about people who, were thre who are threshing out the bread of God's word for the church? How much more should they be looked after? not muzzled, but provided for. And now he gives a better example, I think, when he goes to those employed in the temple service. The priest in the temple shared in the offering. When meat was brought to the temple as a sacrifice, well, they had a big meat fork, and they'd stuck, stick it in, and whatever came out with the fork, that was given to the priest. And so he got a good chunk of meat for his priestly duties. And next offering, another big chunk of meat. He's getting a pretty good haul of his lot of offerings that day. But that was one of the ways that the priests were provided for. Okay, if that's true with priests under Moses, something like that, well, we don't have sacrifices in the temple anymore, but some way God through his people will provide for those who are serving the church today. Okay, but he says, verse 15, I have, not, I have made no use of any of these rites, I'm not bringing it up now. I'm not writing these things to secure any such provision. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And his ground for boasting is I preach for free. 
I mean, I joke sometimes with the church. I said, I, 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 I can't believe they pay me to do this. I would do it. Don't, don't tell the board. But I would do this if, don't tell the finance team. I would do this if they didn't pay me. And, and I don't say that completely in jest, in jest because while we were in, in Swaziland and while we were in, in Johannesburg, that's exactly what I did. I had my work with the mission and yet I couldn't but also teach or preach. As Paul says here, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Of necessity is laid upon me. I would do it anyway. Couldn't give the same amount of time to it, but I would do it anyway. If I do this of my own will, I have a reward. If not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. God has laid this on me. What then is my reward? What then is his boast, he says, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right. And he does this, he does this so that there wouldn't be any obstacle to the gospel. Where, let's see, we came up with that once before. Here we go, up in verse, uh, verse 12. Not to put any obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you see a, do you see a principle emerging here? Paul's using himself as an example of what he said in chapter 8. In chapter 8 he said, yeah, you know these things, you could do that, but don't do what you know you could have the freedom to do if it's going to be an obstacle, a hindrance to somebody else. And now he gives himself an example. I preach for free. I have not laid any burden upon you as the Corinthian church. In fact, he's going to say later on, I robbed other churches in order to serve you at no cost to you. So that you would never think that, oh Paul, he's just up there preaching for the offering. He's, he says these things because he's paid to say that. Uh, he didn't want there to be any sense because in Corinth, that, remember, the paid orators were a big deal. Uh, people polished their oratorical skills so that they could entertain a crowd on a street corner and uh, there was a bucket out front that people could throw coins into and that's how they got paid. The more entertaining they were, the more coins, kind of like a street musician today. The better they are, the more coins they're going to get. And so Paul expressly did not do that. He didn't put a bucket out. He did not look for offerings. He did not look for support from the Corinthian church so that there wouldn't be any mixing of motives. I may present the gospel free of charge. So though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Now he goes on to about adapting. Adapting his freedom in all kinds of ways based on who he's around. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under law. Now, now hold on here. What's going on there? What does he mean when he says, to those under law, I became as one under the law? Is he talking about the Mosaic law? Like yeah. Jewish person? yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's around Jewish people. He's in the synagogue. He's not eating bacon. No ham sandwiches there. He's following along. In fact, when he gets back to, back to Jerusalem at the end of his third journey, what's he do? There's, there are some that are really concerned that Paul's not honoring Moses, and there's these guys that have taken a Nazarite vow, and Paul also had apparently taken a Nazarite vow, and he takes, and he takes these other Jewish men with him into the temple, and he pays for their vow and his. 
showing that he's with his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. He has not forgotten. He can, he can also honor the law. And yet, I'm not under the law. I'm freed from the law in Christ. He's not going to give that up. He is not going to compromise the book of Galatians here. So, just in parentheses, though not being myself under the law. He's not obligated to the law, and yet he's willing to yield his freedom in order to not cause a hindrance. In another day... In Galatia, he actually draws the line and says, No, we will not abide by the law. We will not press the law upon Gentiles and say that they should fulfill it. Because that's going to compromise the gospel. But here, it's going to hinder Jewish people from hearing the gospel from him. And so he yields his rights in order to get close to them. Does that make sense? Any questions on that point? Because again, he's just yielding what he could rightfully do for the benefit of others. But some people be like, well, but back there, you, at that other town, you were like this. So which way are you? Which one? You know, he just travels around. But it kind of seems like he's kind of two-faced. Yeah. Well, see, he's willing to eat with Gentiles. Yeah. But over here, when he's eating with Jewish people, he doesn't have to eat ham. He could. He could bring his own ham sandwich. It caused quite a stir, and he could be trying to make a point, a real dramatic point, a shock value, that, look, I am Jewish, but I can eat ham now. If you believed in Jesus, you could eat ham too. Well, bacon, I guess, would probably be a bigger deal. Might be more, more attractional. But um, he doesn't do that. He, he, he fits right back into the Jewish patterns and practices. He's free to do that. He's not bound to do it. And he's, he is asked, he is pressed on that a little bit. And what he will, he will not, like Peter, I think, says it real well in, in I think, in Acts chapter 15, that, that we would not, why would you put on the Gentiles a yoke of bondage that we, neither we nor our forefathers were able to bear? And the issue was all about putting on the Gentiles, who all the Jews knew, the law, it doesn't apply to the Gentiles. They're the Gentiles. They're out there. They haven't been given the law. We're the ones that have the law of God, and we're the ones that will keep it. But now Gentiles are believing in Messiah. And so there is that tension. So yeah, that does come up a lot in Paul's ministry. But it's a difference between, I can follow as a Jewish man, I can come alongside Jewish people and keep... It's kind of like for Danielle in, uh, in Jordan. She doesn't wear a full burqa. She'll, she'll wear a headscarf and cover her hair because that's, that's a normal thing among Christians in the, in the Mideast as well. Uh, head coverings. We're going to get that in chapter 11. I'm going to ask Peter to, to teach that chapter. The, the, um, but it would be odd for Danielle to actually wear the full burqa because among the Muslims, they would like, oh, who are you pretending to be? You know, that's not your thing. Why are you doing that? You're trying to pretend you're like us when you're not? It would be odd. It would actually be off-putting. And so, but, but as, a, as, a, as a Jewish man, uh, Paul can fit right back into that Jewish culture. Okay, so, to the Jews, that's, why, that's one example. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. The Gentiles. I'm not being outside the law of God, but I'm still under the law of Christ. I'm still accountable to, to, to Christ. I still function under the law of love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as myself. Paul says, I am still fully accountable to that. 
And that's actually what he's practicing here. So when he says, when he says not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, I would insert in your notes right there, think of that in terms of the summary of the law, which is actually given in the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is still under that law, but not under all the expressions of it given through Moses. That I might win those outside the law. So he can hang with the Gentiles and not be the outsider Jew who won't do any of the things that they do. He's able, not as a chameleon pretending, but he's willing to give up his rights and his preferences in either direction for the sensitivity and sake of another. That's the thing. He sacrifices his rights, whether it's to be paid, whether it's to eat bacon or not eat bacon. I've become all things to all people in a good way. That, that can be a negative way, can it? Being all things to all people, well, who are you really? That's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah, and, and as, as he's willing to yield his rights in one direction or another for the sake of whoever he's ministering to. If so that by all means I might save some. Verse 22. I do it all for the sake of gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Then he gives another example that's close to the Corinthians. In Corinth you had, I think every two years, the, Ismith, the Ismithian Games. Uh, a lot of people just call them the Corinthian Games. A big deal, not as big as the Olympics, but a big deal. It was one of the things that made Corinth, uh, 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 Corinth prosper, was all the people that would come in for the games and stay. And, and of course, Paul's a canvas worker. And we, we think about canvas sales for the shipping, and also he's a tent maker. So instead of being supported by the Corinthian church, he's making tents. And one of the things he's making tents for is for temporary dwellings for all these people who come to watch the games and participate in the games. Okay, so here's a, here's, here's a race analogy. All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. Now is that, is that then good Christian competition? Run faster than everybody else in church? So you'll get the prize for Jesus instead of them? Is this like a grown-up version of the Iwana games? Haha, <laughs> blue team, got you again. <laughs> There's something we don't see in most of our English Bibles. You'd see it in the King James Version. And that is, but run in such a way that ye may obtain. You, plural, may obtain. So we still run together. The Christian life is not a competition. In fact, it's, it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's not even a three-legged race. I don't know how it is if all of our legs were tied together. It's that kind of race. That's the race that we're running. We're running in a race together. And so what he's hinting at by saying you plural there, when it wouldn't be expected, he's saying that you strong ones are running with the, running with the weak ones. Run together in ways that are going to help all of you get to the finish line. And if you're doing just a three-legged race, and you're paired up with somebody who's not as fast as you and as strong as you, what do you do? You just run as fast as you can? You adjust your pace and your gait to what they can do. Otherwise, you're both going to fall down. And so, that's kind of the analogy that he's given us here. Run with the others around you. Run well so that you together may obtain the prize. 
we exercise self-control, we exercise self-denial in all things. Athletes do it for a perishable wreath, but we for an imperishable reward. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who's merely beating the air. I make every blow count. Every punch lands. I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Okay, so Paul has done in chapter 9. How would you summarize chapter 9? Okay. But I would assume that means like also we have as Christians. Okay, and his his relinquishing of those rights, his yielding of those. Paul willingly relinquishes his rights and freedoms in order to better serve others where they are. To the first. <coughs> yeah, putting others first. Meeting people where they are rather than expecting them to come to where you are. That's just he he comes across that from an evangelistic point of view. And yet he's, he's modeling something to them that they should do one to another, two brothers and sisters, stronger to weaker within the church. That, um, first of all, he, he says in chapter 8 that the strong should not merely do what they want, but they should consider the weak. He gives himself as an example that he has willingly relinquished his rights, what he could do, the freedoms that he does have, in order to better serve others. And now we're going to get to chapter 10, where we're going to balance freedom with self-control in, other, in, self-control in order to build up others and not hinder. So he's going to put those two together. The principle of don't just think about yourself, think about the weak. The principle of being willing to give up your rights for the sake of others. Now he's going to put that back into this idle question and meet. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, chapter 10, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, that rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And he's referring to Exodus chapter 17 where Moses strikes the rock and water comes out of the, out of the rock. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Most of that first generation died in the wilderness. They waited 40 years. It was their children that went in instead. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. What is he referring to? Idolaters who sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Does that ring any bells? Sorry? The golden calf. calf. You're right on. So, let's see. You've got a cross-reference here. Don't be idolaters. Some of them were the people. Here we go. Okay. Cited from Exodus 32, which is just before Exodus 33 we looked at this morning, or I quoted this morning, where Moses says, show me your glory, just after the failure of Israel, the golden calf. And the eating and drinking was in honor of the golden calf. So that was Israel's first idol feast. You see the parallel to Corinth? 
Well, that's very clever, Paul, how he slips that in. He slips in as a parallel to what's going on in Corinth, the very first idol feast in Israel's history, which is the golden calf, which is the last thing the Christian church would want to be emulating. Very clever what you've done there, Paul. Comparing this question to, should we make a golden calf or not make a golden calf? That's kind of what he does with it. And look, not only was it about the calf, but they then rose up to play, and he's referring to the hedonistic, um, immoral actions that were then going on in the midst of their partying after making the golden calf. We must not indulge in immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. That comes from the book of Numbers. When they followed, when the Moabites followed the council of, council of Balaam, it says, listen, the way you're going to get God to curse these Israelites is you're going to get, the, you get them to follow your gods, to intermarry with your women and then to follow your gods and then God will curse them. And that's what, that's, that's what happened, and that, that's described as some of them did. Let's see, we have cross-reference, Numbers 25. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did when they were destroyed by serpents, grumbling in the wilderness. You brought us out here, you've had us here so long. This is Numbers chapter 21, I think. Uh, destroyed by the serpents. The golden serpent, Numbers 21, and they're grumbling. What are they grumbling about there? Do you remember? Let's take a look at it. This is kind of a fun story. So from Mount Hor, they went to the, by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. People became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water. He brought water from a rock. We have no food, and we loathe this worthless food. What food is it that they loathe as worthless food? manna from heaven, the bread from heaven that God gives them every day. They don't have to do anything for it to just go gather it up. And yet they're grumbling. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among them. Okay. Quit grumbling about dinner. That's the takeaway, boys. Don't grumble about dinner. Okay. We move on. Don't be idolaters. Don't indulge in immorality. Uh, don't put Christ to the test. These phrases are going to come back. Hang on to those in your mind nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's when I think the grumbling against, let's see, Numbers 14, the grumble, the whole congregation, where we had died in the land of Egypt, that we had been not been taken. That's, that's in Numbers 14, pretty early after they leave Sinai. These things are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Yes? That's the last verse. Hmm? That's the best verse. That these the things, written for us. these things are written. That the Old Testament. There are people that will tell you today. No, no, no. Just focus on the New Testament. The Old Testament. That's 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 a that's a that's angry Old Testament God. We're going to focus on on loving, merciful New Testament Jesus. No, no. These things that are written before are written down for our instruction. Absolutely right. And, and Paul's using them to the church. The Bible that, that the apostles had to preach from is the Old Testament. 
on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Be careful, be careful. Those who went before you, they easily looked to themselves and made crucial errors. Critical errors along the way that led them into idolatry and immorality and being destroyed by a destroyer. Keep those things in mind here as we go forward. Okay. No temptation has overtaken you such as common demand, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's an interesting statement. Not sure why that's there. We'll hold on to that one too as we go forward. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread is not a participation in the body of Christ. There is one bread. We who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. What's he saying there? He seems to have jumped tracks now. He's gone on to something else. What's he saying now? The thing about the cup that we drink. The bread that we break. What bread and cup is this? This is the Lord's table. This is communion. The Lord's table, in fact, he's going to say the Lord's table is communion with Christ. It's where we get the word communion. Okay. The cup of blessing that we breast. It is a participation. There is something about this table that is a participation with the Lord. Even as the Old Testament sacrifice, the people of Israel, verse 18, those who ate the sacrifices were participants at the altar. They were participants in a dinner with God as they ate from that food that was offered on the altar. They're having dinner with God. They're at God's banquet table. And the Lord's table for us, he says, is a participation with Jesus. This is one of the reasons the church, in, in our different branches of the church, have, have issues about the Lord's table. It's what kept Luther and Calvin apart, because they couldn't quite come to agreement on exactly what this means. Luther said, no, when the bread and cup are there, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, so that is the very real body and blood of Jesus somehow. That was Luther. Calvin said, no, 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 he's saying this represents because his body and blood are, are, are right there still in his body with that cup there on the table. It can be his body and blood because his, his blood is still in his own body. That's what Calvin's saying. They couldn't come together and that's, that's what kept the Reformation from being unified between Luther and Calvin. A different perspective on the table. Um, Calvin would say that in some spiritual way, Christ's presence is still in the, the bread and the cup. Whereas in a, in a Baptist tradition, we would say the bread and the cup represent for us the blood of Christ that was shed, the body of Christ that was given for us in his death for us. So it reminds us in a tangible object lesson. That's what we would say. And yet, even in that object lesson, there is a spiritual participation in the body of Christ together with our Lord who is present with us in worship. And that's why we're careful about how we do it. We don't just treat this thing lightly. It's just one more thing that you can do or not do or however you want to do it. It's fine. It doesn't matter. We still, we still handle it carefully because there is some spiritual participation here. 
And uh, maybe, maybe in our tradition we ought to elevate that a little bit. Maybe we can take it too casually at times. There's a participation in the body of Christ, but he says that in order to make another point. That's not the main point. He's actually going to talk about the Lord's table in the next chapter. What do I imply then? What's it all about then? Verse 19, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? Is he making much of idols now? Is he saying those idols are a really big deal? No. No, I, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they do offer to demons and not to God. There is a demon behind the idol. One of the things I caution people in a visit to India, I have a friend that goes to India sometimes on business, and... Um, I, I cautioned him about going to active temples. Don't go there. Don't participate because there is, there is spiritual reality there. There is demonic presence there. And it's not to be toyed with. Don't participate with them. You might be doing things. It's kind of like just because your neighbor has a Ouija board and he thinks it's cool doesn't mean you should play, play with it with him. You shouldn't participate with demons. That, that'd be a, um, um, a, a, a good analogy perhaps for us. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay. 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 Yeah. 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 That. Now, and and I do think I do think that um, much that's going on in our culture today there is a there is an, an increasing. Um, demonic, I think, um, expression in our culture today. A lot of what you see that's um, drug-induced or drug leads right into it, but it's not merely mental issues because of drugs, but there's a spiritual demonic component to it as well. And there's an opening up through the pharmaceuticals. There, there's a, um, in fact, uh, when the Bible speaks of sorcery, it's the word that we, we get our word pharmaceuticals from. And so there's a connection there. I think, th I think you could easily describe a lot of what is being done um, in um, misgendering, the gendered confusion today, the trans whole trans transgender push, and even the redefining of marriage. All of that is, is what you would, I think, would fall under Paul's umbrella of doctrines of demons. These are the teachings of demons to pervert and twist and ruin humanity made in the image of God. So that especially, would, which, which aims at the core of God's image in the, in the capstone of his creation, which is humanity, yeah, that's demonic. It's not just humans are confused. It's, uh, it's demonically led, I, I personally believe.
And so the choices that we make, yeah, I'm not going to participate, but um, you're also going to have to, to some extent, exercise the freedom that we are given in this passage as well. And we're, get, we're about to get to how do we balance it. We're about to get there. Um, because if you're going to close yourself off from any time there's the, there's, the, there's the hint of that demonic twist in our culture today, you're going to find yourself going out of the world. Moving to Idaho at least. You know, and, and, and yes, some can go to, I, I didn't say it this morning, but um, not everybody can go to Idaho because then none of us are going to be left here on the mission field. <laughs> okay, there is that reality. <clears throat> Idaho is a mission field too. Uh huh. This new culture, which is oh well, I think the the obvious parallel to the child child sacrifice to Moloch in the Old Testament or abortion. Yeah, and then actually, certainly. I think it's Psalm 106 talks about you sacrifice your yeah. children. Yeah, 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 and it's on the altar of prosperity. To, to pursue prosperity, we will sacrifice our children. And now, yeah, the, the, the crazy things that are being done today to children is, it's, is shocking. I don't want to get too far off into that, but yeah. So, so then, in the midst of such an evil environment that we find ourselves in, in fact, it's getting closer and closer to the first century. Not in identical ways, but in open demonic spiritual opposition to the truth of God in Christ. Certainly, where the tr- those who, who hold to the truth of God in Christ are going to be more and more in the minority and thus marginalized from mainstream culture. That's what I mean when you hear me say we are rushing back to the first century. So we're going to be experiencing that more and more and we're going to need to know how then do Christians balance this? And we're just getting there. Here we go. Okay. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Okay? So let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbors. Alright? Those are the principles that we've talked about so far. Now we've stretched back to chapter 8 again, right? Don't just seek your own good, but the good of your neighbor. Be willing to yield your rights. There's chapter 9, for the sake of what's better for those around you. It might be lawful for you, but it might be, not be helpful for another. It might be okay for you, but it doesn't build up another. It actually might tear them down instead. It might weaken them. Okay. Let's get specific. Eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness of thereof. I have a word from God. I can eat anything. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. I've got a word from God dropped down on a sheet in front of Peter that says I can eat whatever I want. Okay. So, don't ask. This is the original don't ask, don't tell. Bill Clinton didn't come up with it. It's actually biblical. Don't make an issue out of it yourself. Just eat the meat for meat's sake on the basis of faith that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This is God's meat and I can enjoy it freely. Praise God. Hallelujah. Pass the bacon. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner... And you are disposed to go. Oh, pause. What? What? 
We're supposed to have friends who are unbelievers. We're supposed to have dinner with them and invite them over to have dinner with us. You don't have to worry about if the meat's been to an idol or not when they're having dinner with you. And when you have dinner with them, what's he tell you? Don't ask. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions of conscience. Verse 28, if someone says to you, oh, here, this meat tonight, this was just offered in the temple of Apollo. This is good. It was devoted to Apollo. I probably shouldn't eat that then. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. You can have the freedom to eat. But he obviously thinks that's important that this was sacrificed to idols. And so now you've got to say, no, no, I reject your idol. I can't participate with you. This is one of the places that I go, by the way, that I couldn't participate in. I couldn't go in good conscience to a same-sex wedding. Somebody in my extended family, let's say, I couldn't go there. I certainly wouldn't officiate it, but I couldn't go there. I couldn't be part of that because there's a participation in the event and an implied approval of it that I can't go along with that. Now that doesn't mean I can't have dinner with that same couple. It doesn't mean that I can't be friends with them. Years ago I brought a message to church that said, bake another cake. I couldn't bake them a wedding cake, but I could bring them another cake on another occasion. I just couldn't participate in the wedding. It doesn't mean I isolate myself from pagans, and I don't expect pagans to live like Christians. So there's some, there's some subtleties here that we ought to take away as well. I should be able to have friendships with pagans and get close to where they are that I could reach them for the gospel. But when they make a deal about it, when they pull out the Ouija board and say, hey, let's do this, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do that. You know, hey, pull out the Jack Daniel, let's go slap silly drunk. No, I can't do that. That would go against my devotion to the one true God who tells me, don't be drunk with wine. Have a glass, have a, make a toast. Absolutely, I can do that. And yet, I'm not going to have a second glass. So, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's not about you and I. It's about God's glory. It's about others. This is a good example, these three chapters, of what we were talking about this morning. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. Who yielded his own rights for our sake. And here then we would follow him in yielding our rights for the sake of others around us. Whatever you eat or drink, do all the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but uh, that of many, that they may be saved. Seeking the advantage for others. Be imitators or followers of me as I follow Christ. As the way he ends it. And there's, I think, the connection back into Luke chapter 9. Any questions, thoughts? 132, it, it, I mean, this is being in this context, you could definitely read more outside of this context. When he says, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to church, 
just as I try to please everyone in everything we do. Well, because we don't, we do, the, you know, they, they, as they say, the gospel is offensive, and we do. Yeah, 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 yes, so yes, yes, yes. We don't try to please yeah. everyone. He's saying, just yeah. as I do try to please everything and everyone. So, so, so how would you answer that? Well, just, just do whatever, you know, well, today, in today's culture, if I won't embrace same-sex marriage, I'm offending somebody. Yeah. Ooh, do I please everyone in everything I do in that case then? No. Well, no, I'm still subject to the law of Christ. And, and, and so, yeah, that verse has got to be understood within the greater context that he's arguing. He's arguing here for yielding my rights for the sake of others that I don't put a stumbling block to them in terms of their conscience, causing them maybe to do something that they should not do for their own conscience sake. That's where that needs to be taken. This is a, this is a great example of you've got to take that verse in context or else you can go all kinds of sideways. Same as 23 where it says all things are lawful because you're like, well, not all things are lawful. Yeah, all things are lawful. Well, I can drive whatever speed I want. Let me know how that goes for you. <laughs> yeah. Actually, no. Yeah, yeah. he's saying that within, conscience, or, or within context. Great, great point. Anything else? All right. Well, let's pray then. Peter, would you close us in prayer? So next week, chapter 11. The two, two, two big issues there relate to um, women in head coverings and also to the Lord's table. So that's next week, chapter 11.